0: The scripture reading for today comes from Acts chapter 12, verses 1 through 7, 11 through 17, and 20 through 25. About that time, Herod the king laid violent hands on some who belonged to the church. He killed James, the brother of John, with the sword, and when he saw that it pleased the Jews, he proceeded to arrest Peter also. This was during the days of unleavened bread, and when he had seized him... He struck Peter on the side and woke him, saying, Get up quickly. And the chains fell off of his hands. When Peter came to himself, he said, Now I am sure that the Lord has sent his angel and rescued me from the hand of Herod and from all that the Jewish people were expecting. When he realized this, he went to the house of Mary, the mother of John, whose other name was Mark, where many were gathered together and were praying. And when he knocked at the door of the gateway, a servant girl named Rhoda came to answer, An angel of the Lord struck him down, because he did not give God the glory, and he was eaten by worms and breathed his last. But the word of God increased and multiplied, and Barnabas and Saul returned from Jerusalem when they had completed their service, bringing with them John, whose other name was Mark. Man does not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of the Lord. You can be seated and good morning again. Welcome to New Life Fremont. My name is Kevin. If I haven't had a chance to meet any of you yet, we are continuing our sermon series through the book of Acts, which we have been calling The World Turned Upside Down. Wherever the gospel goes, wherever the grace of Jesus is embraced, things get turned upside down. And uh, we've been in a section of Acts that focuses primarily on the church's growth in Judea and Samaria, especially among the Gentiles. But our passage today actually takes a quick look back at what's been going on in Jerusalem all this time among the Jewish Christians. And unfortunately, it's more persecution. The Christians in Jerusalem are suffering, even being killed or falsely imprisoned. So we're going to be looking a little bit more closely at the persecution in Jerusalem and God's work there. And uh, as we do so, we'll have three points. First, sovereignty. Second, rescue. And third, justice. Sovereignty, rescue, and justice. And so let's begin with our first point, sovereignty. Our passage begins with Peter and James being treated differently from one another being persecuted differently from one another for no real apparent reason. It almost seems random. It seems to be by chance. Verse 1 says that about that time, Herod the king laid violent hands on some who belonged to the church. And so King Herod, he's the persecutor. He's about to lay violent hands on some who belong to the church, including James and Peter. But he's going to treat them differently. Verse 2 says that King Herod killed James, the brother of John, with the sword. He just straight up kills him. That's it. James is dead now. But what happens to Peter? Verses 3 through 4. And when he saw that it pleased the Jews, he proceeded to arrest Peter also. This was during the day of unleavened bread. And when he had seized him, he put him in prison delivering him over to four squads of soldiers to guard him, intending after the Passover to bring him out to the people. So does King Herod kill Peter? No. He only arrests Peter, puts him in prison. James, Herod executes, but Peter merely gets thrown in prison, maybe to be killed later. But nonetheless, for now, Peter still has breath in his lungs, and James does not. Why? Why does one get to live while the other dies? Why is one treated so much more violently than the other? Why the discrepancy? Well, a similar question is brought up in the Gospel of John. In John 21, you know, after Jesus has that conversation with Peter, where he asks him three times if he loves him, and then tells him three times to feed his sheep, at the end of that conversation, Jesus says this in John 21:18. Truly, truly, I say to you, when you were young, Peter, you used to dress yourself and walk wherever you wanted. But when you are old, you will stretch out your hands, and another will dress you and carry you where you do not want to go. Essentially, what Jesus is doing is prophesying about Peter's death. He's telling Peter that he's going to have his hands stretched out and be carried off where he does not want to go, most likely indicating that Peter's death would be by crucifixion. And so Peter hears this terrible news, and he looks around, and he sees the disciple John, and he asks Jesus, Lord, what about him? If I have to die by crucifixion, what about him? Does he have to die that way also? You know, if I have to be killed and crucified, it's only fair that he has to also, right? How does Jesus respond to Peter, uh, John twenty one twenty two, If it is my will that John remain until I come— What is that to you? You follow me, Peter. That was probably not what Peter wanted to hear. What Peter wanted to hear from Jesus was some sort of promise or assurance that he and John and every other disciple will be treated the same. That if Peter has to die by crucifixion, then if he has to be killed, then all the other disciples are going to be killed likewise. But Jesus says, no, Peter, I will not make that promise. If it's my will that John remains alive until I come, what is that to you? You follow me, Peter. I don't follow you. You follow me. If my will for the other disciples is different than my will for you, that's my business, not yours. And this is an uncomfortable truth from Jesus, right? The reality is that in life, Jesus doesn't promise equity as far as circumstances go. If he can say to Peter, you're going to be crucified, and what is it to you if I let John live until I come again, then anything between life and a brutal execution is fair game, right? Jesus does not promise equity. Now, don't hear what I'm not saying. I'm not saying that Jesus loves some of us more than others. I'm not saying that—what uh, I'm, I'm, I am saying, though, is that he doesn't treat us exactly the same as others You know, we may see something very similar in parenting, right? Parents, you love your children the same, but that doesn't mean you always treat them the same. One child may need this, another child may need that. Same love, different parenting. Same thing with Jesus. Same love, but different circumstances, different lots in life. And he actually knows better than parents what his sheep need. Ironically, though, in our passage in Acts, the unequal circumstances actually go in Peter's favor. It's Peter who lives while James suffers a brutal execution. And why? Why does Peter live but James dies? Why does Jesus say Peter will be executed but won't say that John will? Why aren't we all treated the same? Well, The answer is found in Jesus' words to Peter. You follow me, Peter. I'm in charge, Peter. I am sovereign, Peter. You follow me. You know, everyone's life circumstances are different from one another's because Jesus is in charge. He's sovereign, and in his holiness, in his wisdom, in his power, he preserves and governs all of his creatures and all their actions in order to bring about his purposes for his own glory. You know, God is sovereign, and that's why you receive some things that others don't and lack some things that others get, because God is sovereign, and that's how he's determined, according to the counsel of his will, to bring about his purposes. It's because God is sovereign. But let's make it personal. You know, how do you do when you perceive that God seems to be treating someone else better than you, and for no apparent reason. You know, whose life have you compared yours to recently? You know, how come they've gotten a promotion or a better job, but I'm still stuck at this one? Why is their spouse so much better than mine? Why are their kids so much better behaved than mine? Why do they have good health, but I'm stuck with this chronic condition? Why does their church own a building and we still rent? Why do they have several good pastors on staff and we only have one mediocre one? (laughs) Whose circumstances have you been comparing yourselves to lately? Have you found yourself unsatisfied with your lot in life compared to someone else's? You know, Jesus' words to you are very similar to his words to Peter. If it's my will that they get this and you don't, what is that to you? You follow me, Jesus says which means you should take your dissatisfaction to Jesus. All right Lord, I follow you and I'm not really pleased with how following you is going right now. And you know, if you've got a complaint, if you've got disappointment, if you've got dissatisfaction, if you have pain, take it to Jesus. Because first of all, he's in charge. He's sovereign. Every single detail of your life falls under his sovereign control, and so you can bring it all to him. But secondly, You can bring it to him because he's sympathetic. For we do not have a great high priest who is unable to sympathize. You know, Peter got worse news uh, from Jesus than we'll ever get, right? You're going to be crucified, Peter. But do you know who else was crucified? Jesus. Peter, you're going to die on a cross, but take heart. I know exactly what that's like. And I'm going to be with you every step of the way to the very end of the age. Same promise to you. Jesus says to you, in the midst of your dissatisfaction and pain and disappointment, in the midst of all that seems unfair, Jesus says, I know what it's like. I'm with you in this. I'm with you now, and I will be with you until the very end of the age. Jesus is with you. Now, back to Peter. As I've already alluded to in our chapter in Acts, even though James dies— Peter gets to live. His prison sentence doesn't end with his death, actually. He gets out. He is rescued. And that takes us to our second point, rescue. You know, it's been estimated that over $900 billion, that's nine with 11 zeros after it, over $900 billion have been spent rescuing Matt Damon in movies that he's been in whether that's from the battlefield in World War II and Saving Private Ryan or from Planets in Outer Space and Interstellar or The Martian or the several other movies where he has to be rescued. Matt Damon has needed rescuing so much from so far away that it's cost an estimated $900 billion. But it just goes to show that we all love a good rescue movie. We are captivated by stories of rescue, especially if the person being rescued is Matt Damon. In our passage... Peter is the one who is rescued. He's rescued from his imprisonment, which obviously is a mighty work in and of itself, just as a practical rescue from jail. But there are also several aspects of Peter's rescue that point to our spiritual rescue from being imprisoned or enslaved to sin so I want to look more closely at Peter's rescue from a more spiritual perspective. And not because I believe that practical rescue is irrelevant or unimportant. It's not. But, you know, with limited time, I want to think about our rescue from a spiritual perspective and observe four things about it. And so first, Peter is rescued through prayer. Verse 5 says, So Peter was kept in prison, but earnest prayer for him was made to God by the church earnest prayer was made for Peter to God by the church. And we get a glimpse into this a little later uh, in verse 12. This is after Peter is rescued, but uh, verse 12 says that when Peter realized this, he went to the house of Mary, the mother of John, whose other name is Mark, where many were gathered and were praying. And so while Peter is in prison, and actually a little bit afterward, before they realize he's been rescued, uh, the church was gathering. They were gathering together and praying for Peter, praying for his rescue. And then God did rescue him. And so we can conclude that Peter was rescued through the people's prayers. And obviously it was God who rescued Peter ultimately. But the means by which God rescued him was the people's prayer. The people prayed, God heard those prayers, and acted to rescue Peter. as As I've said before, Scripture teaches that prayer actually can change the circumstances of history. It really does. Not just theoretically, not just hypothetically, but really, in God's goodness and wisdom, he has decided to make this world susceptible to our prayers. He's sovereign over the world, which means he's sovereign over our prayer, too. And he can choose to use prayer to rescue if he wants to, and often he wants to. And so what does that have to do with you? Well, First and foremost, if you're a Christian, your own rescue from imprisonment to sin was through prayer. At the very least, through your own prayer for forgiveness and salvation, but also quite likely through the prayers of others. You know, do you know who was praying for your rescue? Who do you think likely prayed for your rescue? Who prayed for you when you were born? Who prayed for you throughout your life? You know, thank God for those people. Praise God for those people. Those people's prayers were part of the means by which God rescued you. But not just your rescue. The rescue of others uh, has come or will come through prayer. And so who have you prayed for who was rescued by God? Or who are you praying for that God would rescue them? Who ought you be praying for earnestly that God would rescue God truly does work through the prayers of his people to bring about rescue. And so earnestly pray to God for rescue. Peter's rescue was through prayer. It's first observation. Second observation Peter's rescue was miraculous. Verses 6 and 7. Now, when Herod was about to bring him out on that very night, Peter was sleeping between two soldiers, bound with two chains, and sentries before the door were guarding the prison. And behold, an angel of the Lord stood next to him, and a light shone in the cell. He struck Peter on the side and woke him, saying, Get up quickly. And the chains fell off of his hands. It's miraculous. Peter is bound up, he's sleeping between soldiers, there's guards at the prison door. There is no way that Peter is getting out of there undetected unless something miraculous happens, and it does. An angel of the Lord makes the chains fall off and leads Peter out of the prison without any of the guards knowing. Even Peter can't believe it. He actually thinks that he's having a dream initially, and uh, in verse 11 he says, uh, in verse 11 says, Peter came to himself, and he said, Now I am sure that the Lord has sent his angel and rescued me from the hand of Herod and from all that the Jewish people were expecting. Now Peter is like, Wait, I wasn't dreaming? This is really happening? The Lord has sent an angel to rescue me? It's miraculous. All rescue is miraculous, really. Which again is why we pray for rescue, because it's ultimately God's work. We can't work hard enough, smart enough, wisely enough, patiently enough, winsomely enough to bring about someone else's rescue. It's always miraculous. And therefore, it always depends on God's sovereign and rescuing power. Which is, you know, easy to forget, especially if you're anything like me. It can be easy to think that if we just know enough apologetics, if we're just culturally relevant enough, if we could just get someone to come to church or to the small group or to hear this speaker, then through our own wisdom and work, we can rescue them. We can bring about just the right circumstances that they'll hear the gospel and believe. don't get me wrong— We should think wisely about our evangelistic efforts and not just approach it willy-nilly. But at the end of the day, all rescue is miraculous. And so underlying any evangelistic efforts must be prayer. You know, Lord, please rescue my friend from their imprisonment to sin. Give them eyes to see. Give them ears to hear. Give them a humble heart. Please rescue my friend, God. All rescue is miraculous in the specifics, but also in the overarching reason for our rescue. God became a man, the incarnation, the miracle of miracles. Jesus Christ came to earth, lived the life that we could not live, had compassion on us even though we were harassed and helpless and failed consistently, took our sin to the cross and paid it all. You could not have thought to pray for such a plan for your rescue, but God planned your rescue and brought it about through Jesus. All rescue is miraculous. It's the second observation. Third observation, rescue is hard to believe. When Peter is rescued from prison, he goes to the house of Mary where everyone is praying for him. Verses 13 through 16 say, This is actually kind of a funny scene. First of all, the servant girl Rhoda, when she sees Peter, doesn't even unlock the gate to let him in. She's so excited she leaves him locked outside while she runs inside to tell everyone else that he's there. But second, when she tells everyone that Peter is there, that he's been rescued, uh, the thing that they've been praying for, they don't believe her. They've been praying that Peter would be rescued. They hear that he's been rescued and they don't even believe it. But it just goes to show that rescue can be hard to believe. And so while you're praying for rescue in the lives of other people, you probably should also be praying for yourself. Pray that you would continue to believe that rescue is possible, because it's hard to believe sometimes, right? We all will need to pray a a very similar prayer as as the Father in Mark 9. I believe, help my unbelief. I believe you can rescue God. I believe you alone can rescue God, but help me in those times when I don't believe it. But not only the rescue of other people, not only is that hard to believe, sometimes our own rescue is hard to believe, right? You know, one of the most common questions that new believers have, or really believers of any amount of time, uh, one of the most common questions is, how can I know for sure that I'm saved, that I'm rescued? How can I know for sure that I have been rescued? And the Apostle John says specifically in his gospel and in his first epistle, uh, the Apostle John answers questions like these in multiple places. John 20, 31. What's written in this book is written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. Or 1 John five thirteen. I write these things so that you who believe in the name of the Son of God, that you may know that you have eternal life. And John's like It can be hard to believe that Jesus is the Christ and the Son of God. It can be difficult to believe that you have eternal life. So I've written entire books so that you may know that Jesus is the Christ. He's God. Life is found in his name. If you believe in the name of Jesus, you can know that you have eternal life. You can know that you've been rescued. There's even elements of the worship service each and every week, designed specifically to shore up your belief that you have been rescued. The assurance of grace is a big one, so that you can be sure that if you repent and believe, God has forgiven you in his grace. Or the Lord's Supper. You can be sure that God isn't mad at you. God isn't keeping you at arm's length. Your salvation isn't in question because he's invited you to have a meal with him. Why would he invite you to have a meal with him if you weren't saved? you've been rescued from your imprisonment and slavery to sin, and now you're seated at Jesus's table to eat with him. All these are designed to remind you that your rescue is sure, because rescue can be hard to believe. God wants you to believe that you have been rescued. That's the third observation. And finally, our fourth observation about rescue. Rescue should be testified to. Verse 17 But motioning to them with his hand to be silent, Peter described to them how the Lord had brought him out of the prison. And he said, tell these things to James and to the brothers. Then he departed and went to another place. Peter testifies to his rescue, and he tells the people in the house to testify to his rescue also. Tell these things to James and to the brothers, Peter says. Testify to my rescue. Testify to all rescue. You know, one of the greatest evangelistic tools every single believer has is the testimony of their own rescue. How did God rescue you? From what did God rescue you? Where was your life heading before God rescued you? What does your life trend toward the less you embrace God's rescue? What does it look like the more you embrace God's rescue? How has God's rescue changed you? You know, how would you testify to others about God's rescue in your own life? You know, in my life, when God's rescue is less real to me, I can be a pretty anxious person. You know, when I was a student, I used to stress and stress and stress about quizzes and tests and exams and grades. I would later in life stress about job applications or interviews. I would be anxious of what people thought about me all the time. But as God's rescue became more and more real to me, that anxiety began to fade. You know, I'm less insecure, and I experience more security. I'm not so worried about my performance. I'm not so worried about what people think of me. Just ask my wife. Sometimes she thinks I should worry a little more. But truly, no matter how I stack up, whether it's grades or in my job or socially, God thought that I was worth rescuing. He already chose me. He already rescued me, and that makes a massive difference in my life. You know, if God had not rescued me, I'd have been a slave to my grades and resume. I'd have been a slave to what people thought of me, of trying to be cool socially, which is, you know, particularly difficult because typically you can't have it all. Slaving away to my grades and work would cause my social life to suffer. Slaving away in my social life would cause my grades or work to suffer. And so I'd constantly be stuck in a cycle of anxiety about underperformance in one area or another. But God has freed me from that. He's rescued me. What has he rescued you from? How has he rescued you? You know, when might you get a chance to testify about that to someone else? You know, if you're going on our church camping trip, maybe ask someone... Can you testify about God's rescue in your life? I'd love to share with you about my rescue of God's rescue in my life. You know, maybe that would be a part of helping you prepare to testify to your non-believing friends. Also, how has God rescued you? From what did God rescue you? Rescue comes through prayer. Rescue is miraculous. Rescue is hard to believe, and rescue ought to be testified to. Peter was rescued from his persecution But not everyone gets rescued in this life. James was killed, and we know that Peter eventually was killed too. He was crucified. Yes, there's spiritual rescue for all who believe, but what about the physical imprisonments or oppression or life-taking that Christians experience? Does God care about that? Yes, God does care about that, and that takes us to our final point, justice. Have you ever had a hard time letting go of a minor injustice? You know, some small situation where you were treated unfairly. You know, yesterday I was driving home from Costco and exiting 880 onto Thornton. And at that that exit, there's two right turn lanes that each guide drivers into a specific lane on Thornton. And I use that exit all the time, so I, of course, know exactly which lane I'm supposed to go to. But as I was making that turn another car in the turn lane next to me started to drift into my lane. And to make matters worse, he had the audacity to honk his horn at me as if I had done something wrong, when in fact he had veered into the wrong lane, and he gestured at me like I was an idiot, and so I had to slow down, and he merged into my lane, and he drove on, never knowing that I was actually right, and he was actually wrong. It's a pretty small and insignificant moment, doesn't matter that much, but something inside of me had a hard time letting it go. It seems so unfair, so unjust. How come I was the one who got honked at? He deserved to be honked at. How come he gets to go about the rest of his day, the rest of his life, thinking that he was right and I was wrong when in fact I was right and he was wrong? Even with the small stuff, we all struggle with moments in our lives when we perceive we've been treated unfairly or unjustly. In our passage, we get a glimpse into how God feels about moments of injustice. Moments much more significant than turning into the wrong lane. When Peter is rescued, we read this in verses 20 through 23. Now, Herod was angry with the people of Tyre and Sidon, and they came to him with one accord and having persuaded Blastus, the king's chamberlain, they asked for peace because their country depended on the king's country for food. On an appointed day, Herod put on his royal robes, took a seat upon his throne, and delivered an oration to them. And the people were shouting, the voice of God and not of a man. Immediately, an angel of the Lord struck him down because he did not give God the glory. And he was eaten by worms and breathed his last. Herod, the king who had laid violent hands on the church, the one who killed James and had Peter arrested, he's killed. An angel of the Lord strikes him down. The same angel of the Lord that freed Peter from prison. An angel of the Lord rescues, and an angel of the Lord strikes down. And why does the angel of the Lord, why does God strike down Herod? Justice. Herod deserves it. For at least two reasons. I mean, first, and probably what is most emotionally satisfying to us, he persecuted the church at the very beginning of our passage. It said that Herod had laid violent hands on some who belonged to the church. He killed James. He had Peter arrested falsely. He killed innocent people. And so now, at the end of our passage, when God strikes him down, he's receiving what he deserves. Justice is served. King Herod has reaped what he sowed. But second, and maybe a little bit less likely to be emotionally satisfying, Our passage tells us in verse 23 that Herod was struck down because he did not give God the glory. He did not give God the glory and that warranted being struck down. And of course, his persecution of the church, his murder of James, false imprisonment of Peter, that was all fruit of Herod's failure to give God glory. But ultimately, at its root, God's justice was served because Herod failed to give God glory. He did not treat God as God. He made sure that he Herod was worshipped and served above God and so God struck him down. Uh, but his death, his judgment, it's only a foretaste of God's final judgment of his eternal justice. You know, through Herod's death we see that God cares about injustice. He intends to punish the unrighteous, the wicked, the evil. You see, a question that arises over and over again in the Old Testament is essentially this. Why do the wicked prosper? Why do those who are evil always seem to win? Will the wicked ever lose? Do you ever feel like that? Do you ever look at the world, you know, either big picture or very specifically, and find yourself asking, why do all the bad people in the world seem to be getting ahead? God, do you care about that? In the striking down of Herod, we see that the answer is yes, God does care. Yes, the wicked will eventually lose. And we don't always see justice like that in this lifetime, but we certainly will see justice in the next. At the end of the age, Jesus will return and he will judge the living and the dead. All will be revealed and perfect justice will be handed out. And that is the great comfort for those who suffer now. It's a great comfort to those who are faithful. It's a great comfort to those who are persecuted, like the church in Jerusalem. We might see no justice now. We might only see glimmers of justice now. But we can know for sure that justice will be paid in full at the end. God is just, and he will bring about justice in the end. And that is bad news for the prideful, but it is good news for the humble. Because don't forget, even though some sins are more wicked and more evil than others, all sins make us liable to that judgment before God. You know, Herod wasn't ultimately struck down because he persecuted the church. He was ultimately struck down because he did not give God glory, something that I am sure you're guilty of sometimes, just like I am which is why the final judgment is bad news for the prideful, but good news for the humble, because there's a way to avoid Herod's fate. All you have to do is admit you deserve it. If you do that, then Christ promises to forgive you. Instead of your life being demanded of you, his life, given on the cross, will serve as a just punishment for your sin. In fact, did you know that it's actually God's justice that you can appeal to for your salvation? You know, imagine you die and stand before God and he asks you, why should I let you in to eternal life? You should appeal to his justice. 1 John 1, 9 says, if we confess our sins to God, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And the point is this, for those who confess Christ and repent of their sin, God has laid our sins upon Jesus and sent him to the cross with them. So their punishment has already been paid. It would be unjust of God to punish Jesus and to punish us for the same sin. And so we can appeal to God's justice. Why should you let me into eternal life, God? Because you're just. And you would not punish both Jesus and me for the same sin. You would not punish the same sin twice. You are just God. God is just. Take hope in his perfect justice. He will punish the wicked, the evil, our persecutors, and he will forgive our sins. He will forgive every sin that's already been laid on Jesus and paid for. You can be sure of that. Appeal to God's justice. God is just. Let's pray. Father in heaven, Lord, we praise you and thank you for your Son who has taken our sin to the cross and dealt with it forever. Father, we confess that we struggle to embrace our rescue. We struggle to trust in your sovereignty. We struggle to take hope in your justice that will come at the end of the age. Father, by your Spirit, would you fill us and help us to trust your sovereign control, to be thankful for your rescue and to have hope in the future you have laid for us. We pray this all in your Son's name. Amen.